When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Recode Daily. I'm Adam Clark Estes. And today, we're talking Dune. For some, Dune is their favorite sci-fi book. For others, it's a cult classic David Lynch movie from the 1980s. One thing is clear, it's a story worth telling, and filmmakers are giving it another shot. Director Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of the epic is coming to theaters and HBO Max this week, which begs the question, what is it about Dune that keeps us coming back? Here's Alyssa Wilkinson, film critic at Vox, to help us answer that question. So I think that Villeneuve's film is incredibly successful at making you feel like you're in that world, capturing these sweeping vistas. You know, it's set on a desert planet. There's all these interesting kind of images that come out of it. One of the ones that usually sticks with people is there are giant sandworms that kind of burrow their way through the desert. And the way he tells it and leans on visual images that he's been able to render and create and imagine emphasizes the strangeness of it, the deserty nature of it. The kind of scariness of it, I think, is really important, that it's just big and vast and deadly. It also feels bigger than a lot of science fiction does. Some people compare it to to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is a very bold comparison, but I can kind of see where they're coming from. It really is immersive. They're taking my family off one by one. Let's fight like demons. It's been attempted to be adapted for the screen several times with very bad results. And so this is Denis Villeneuve's attempt. And it's a really, really big, big, bold movie. And for a lot of people, it's, you know, the culmination of their lifelong interest in the book Dune. And can you talk a little bit about how past attempts have gone? Yeah, so in the 70s, the director Alejandro Jodorowsky was brought on to a burgeoning Dune project, and it was the 70s, and he interpreted it as kind of a psychedelic, mind-transcending experience that he wanted to make. He actually says in an interview that he wanted people to have the feeling of being on LSD, watching it without actually being on LSD. Movies have heart. Boom, boom. Boom, have mind, have power, have ambition. I wanted to do something like that. Why not? It was expansive, what he wanted to make, and basically impossible in the 1970s to pull it off. He brought all these incredible people together. He wanted Salvador Dali to be in it, and the studios just wouldn't go forward with it. And then eventually, in 1984, a version of the film came out directed by David Lynch, starring Kyle MacLachlan in his first film role. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. 
The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. And it is not very good. <laughs> so you can watch it. Um, HBO Max has it up right now. It's kind of fun to watch almost as a contrast to what Villeneuve has managed to do with it. It tries to cover the entire novel. And keep in mind, the novel's about 800 pages long. And so that's just too much <laughs> for a two-hour movie. And Lynch really hates this movie. He kind of disavowed it. I don't think it's quite as bad as he thinks it is. It has its charms. It's kind of a cult favorite now. But it definitely is kind of a janky and strange film. And as well as you can, how would you contrast that film, which I have seen, with a new one, which I haven't seen yet? Yeah, there are a couple of big differences besides the fact that, you know, the the 40-year gap between them has led to a lot of advances in technology, which certainly make it easier to render things like giant sandworms and have them actually be awe-inspiring and not just kind of goofy looking. There's a lot of voiceover in the Lynch one that I think weakens it considerably, and there's a lot of, like, explaining what's going on to you. And the Villeneuve one kind of dispenses with that completely. So there's not a lot of, like, voiceover occasionally you'll hear a whisper or something um, and Villeneuve really counts on the audience to either be familiar with the story and thus kind of know what's going on or just be willing to kind of submit to the story and sink into it and allow it to envelop them with all of its mystery and its strangeness and its otherworldliness. It seems like sci-fi reboots and remakes are having a moment right now. We've seen a Blade Runner sequel recently. We've got another Ghostbusters movie coming out. Why do you think we keep coming back to these stories? So there's a couple things going on. One is that the fan culture around those sci-fi stories is very big. <laughs> they want to see more of their favorite stories, more of their characters. You know, there's a reason Star Wars continues on and on and Star Trek spins off all the time and keeps getting new iterations. It's to keep expanding these worlds. And that's a big part of film culture these days, especially big budget commercial film culture. And that is really facilitated, I think, by online communities that have been around, you know, since bulletin boards in the 80s and 90s and now have migrated to social media. And then the other part of it is that, of course, it's not easy to make a movie like Dune, but certainly the tools available to filmmakers now are different than they were in the 1980s and the 1970s. Some of the things that Jodorowsky wanted to do in the 70s would not be difficult at all now, whereas they would have been insurmountably difficult in an age before computer graphics. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when you're talking about film all the time, is that film has always been a very technologically driven medium. Every time the stories have changed, it's because there's been some kind of advance in the tech, whether it's now we have color or now we have sound or now cameras are getting lighter and we can carry them around. Film's getting cheaper. Now we don't need film because we have digital. So all of those things have always spurred changes in the way we tell stories. And these science fiction movies that are retelling of a story that's tried to be told before is also a technological advance right there. All right, Alyssa, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So Dune is a science fiction story, but some parts of it feel very real, especially in 2021. Could Dune actually be a story about climate change on our own planet? Gio Dvorsky seems to think so. Gio is a reporter for Gizmodo, and he's here to tell us more. Hey, Gio. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for being here. You recently wrote a great piece for Gizmodo titled, After Dune, You'll Never Think About Water the Same Way Again. So how did reading Dune change the way you think about water? 
ultimately the story was the story is about a lot of different things, but at the core, when it comes to the plight of the people living on, on the planet Dune or Arrakis, it's about water scarcity. So you can't help but read the book and then come out of it with a completely new approach to the privilege of all the water that we have. So certainly, you know, coming out of that book, I, my approach to water changed in the sense that, you know, you started to hate to see the wasting of water in front of you. Like you didn't let the tap run as long as you normally would. You wouldn't want to take longer showers. I mean, honestly, even rainstorms didn't seem to be such an intrusion. They seemed to be something to be treasured, to be valued. Like, that's the kind of impact the book will have on you. And the movies, to a certain degree, do the same thing. And the people on Arrakis, how do they cope with water scarcity? I mean, first and foremost, of course, you know, they do have cultural adaptations and it has become they have practices that are even embedded into their spiritual beliefs and so on. But from a practical perspective, they have developed some technologies to help them venture into the desert. Very famously, this is the so-called still suit. It's this full body suit that they wear that prevents any moisture from escaping from the body. So it catches everything from your sweat, even your breath, the moisture that's in your breath. It recycles your urine. And the Fremen claim that a still suit, when properly fitted, you won't lose more than a thimble full of water. So, of course, we are talking about a sci-fi book and movies based on it. But realistically, how do the problems of the planet Arrakis compare to the threats on planet Earth? I mean, that's the big question, right? And Earth is very much not like Arrakis. Like, Earth is absolutely bathing in water. Like, we do have a lot of fresh water. And I believe that's about 3.5% about of all the water on Earth is of that kind. The problem, Adam, is not that we don't have enough water on Earth is that it's just not evenly distributed, that we have areas of abundance and then we have areas of scarcity. And other parts of the U.S. are, are dealing with ongoing desertification, the threats of mega droughts, and of course the, the mounting costs of having to um, distribute and share the fresh water that is available in the United States. And this is ultimately you know, where suddenly a story like Dune becomes highly relevant. What innovations have we come up with, not just in the U.S., but around the world to conserve water? Right now in China, for example, there is this massive pipe and canal system that they're working on. It's costing them tens and tens of billions of dollars. And it's just a matter of, you know, getting the water from point A to point B. It's a very, you know, very challenging proposition. And of course, you can have other ventures dealing with, you know, various irrigation techniques, different ways of extracting subterranean water and so on. But again, these are very costly, very awkward ways of having to transport water from, from different places. By the way, in California, um, the state spends upwards of 20% of its total electricity costs having to deal with the transportation of water. Where there's perhaps a more promising, technologically focused way of dealing with water scarcity or water stress is this whole idea of desalination, which is exactly that. You, you know, you're taking the salt out of ocean water, making it fresh potable water so that, you know, people can drink it. What really needs to be done is this kind of industrial mass scale version of desalination. And that's a bit more difficult as a technological hurdle. And there's another real world tech that you covered, and it actually feels a lot like what exists in Dune. NASA has been using it on the ISS for a while. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, this is pretty amazing. It really struck me when I was um, reading about this, the similarity to the Fremen still suit. What they've done on the International Space Station is kind of like the next best thing in the sense that the whole interior of the space station basically acts like a self-contained system in terms of how they're able to replenish their water. They can recycle upwards of 90% of all the water that's brought up there. They are recycling everything from the sweat that comes off their bodies 
the moisture that's in the air from their breathing, even the water that they're using for showers, it all gets put back into the system. It goes through filtration processes. They have to take the smell out of it, but they can do it. Like I said, it's not an easy process, which again, just points to the value of water, that every drop has to be conserved. Every drop is sacred in that sense and has to go through the system. So my last question for you is a big picture one and bringing us back down to earth a little bit. What's the takeaway for people who are just experiencing Dune for the first time? Is this a climate change story? I would say it's most certainly a climate change story. We are dealing with the effects in the here and now of human-induced climate change. And of course, we see that with extreme weather. We see that, you know, with the uh, ongoing desertification, we're seeing it with ongoing heat waves. And all these things are adding up to creating, again, these kind of like Arrakis-like places on Earth. So a movie like Dune, it's a harsh reminder, right? that water is something to be valued, but at the same time is something that can disappear, you know, very quickly and become a, a point of a lot of stress. I do think that the viewers of the film, or even if you just read the novels, you, I mean, you will come out of it with a different approach to water, a different approach to the environment. So I, I do believe that Dune will forever be timeless, but now more so than ever, as we are now full on in, you know, the era of climate change. Gio, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Recode Daily. This episode was produced by Alan Rodriguez Espinosa and engineered by Melissa Ponce from Hemlock Creek Productions.